Delirium in ICU patients can inflict lasting damage. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Wesley Ely. Dr. Ely is a professor of medicine at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Ely specializes in pulmonary and critical care medicine with a focus in geriatrics. Dr. Ely founded the Vanderbilt ICU Delirium and Cognitive Impairment Study Group. Dr. Ely, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you, Susan. It's my privilege. Give us an ICU Delirium 101. ICU Delirium 101 is you being called to the hospital to see your grandmother or grandfather or even spouse and getting up there and seeing somebody who was previously doing great, ticking along in life and uh, with no real problems and got pneumonia yesterday. Now they're on life support on a ventilator in the hospital and are awake enough to look at you and uh, can follow you around the room. But when you try and interact with them, they clearly cannot make any sort of contact or follow any simple directions like squeeze my hand when I ask you a yes-no question or something like that. And what's happening is that their brain is very dysfunctional. And even though they're able to open their eyes, the brain cannot focus enough to pay attention or organize their thoughts. And oftentimes that person, that loved one of yours, is hallucinating and thinking very scary and dangerous thoughts about what's going on in their lives. What's causing this? The person who's sick like this oftentimes have problems with blood flow and with oxygen levels. And so those components of the illness can actually lead to the delirium. But in addition, we as clinicians, I as an ICU physician and nurses and our teams, often do many things that can also exacerbate or really lead to this problem, like giving drugs that might have problems with the way the person thinks, or even not paying close enough attention to the salts, fluid levels, and other components of the patient's body. How prevalent is ICU delirium? People would be shocked, Susan, that this is a problem that occurs or a type of organ dysfunction, if you will, that occurs in probably about seven to eight out of every 10 people in an ICU. So 70 to 80 percent of people will have an acute brain dysfunction when they have this critical illness in the ICU. What's the difference between confusion and delirium? Well, confusion is a more generic term that all of us could experience at any time in our life, while delirium is a medical term that focuses or centers around the presence of inattention. The basic diagnostic thing that goes on with delirium is that somebody can't pay attention. And delirium is a harbinger of very bad outcomes, such as higher death rates, higher cost of care, longer stays in the hospital, and maybe, uh, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, long-term brain dysfunction. Is there a link between delirium and long-term cognitive impairment? It really appears that there is. And most of our data now would indicate that if you do experience delirium in the ICU, you have probably around a 10-fold higher likelihood of having delirium and long-term cognitive impairment at the time of hospital discharge. And for every day that somebody's delirious, their chance of having long-term cognitive impairment goes up somewhere in the neighborhood of 30-35%. How is the cognitive impairment manifested? It's kind of like somebody having dementia, so that people who have this cognitive impairment after an intensive care unit stay are often noted to not be able to do things like balance their checkbook, find their car in a parking lot, remember names, or simply just do the things that made them happy. And that 
It could involve things as basic as going back to work and running the computer program that you used to do with ease or organizing a shopping list and going to the grocery store. Is it permanent? In about a third to a half of people, it appears that they do not recover. There's a a smaller minority of people who do get full recovery, but we're worried that this is really a public health problem that the lay public and most of the medical community is not really aware of just yet. Is it true that delirium in ICU patients was once thought to be temporary? Yes, and even worse than that, not only was it thought to be temporary, and, and in some patients, as I said, it is still temporary, and I don't want to give the feeling that this is always a permanent condition. By no means is it. But basically, the medical teams still think, for in a large part, that it's not something they need to worry about. Don't worry, Mr. Smith. Your grandfather is very confused right now and delirious, but this is something that happens in almost all people, and therefore they kind of equate happens in the majority with it's okay, not a problem. So is delirium misdiagnosed? It's absolutely misdiagnosed. In fact, the majority of patients who develop this form of delirium I'm talking about have it completely missed by the medical team. And the reason is that if you want to have a picture painted for you, the delirium is oftentimes more more manifested by negative symptoms than it is by positive symptoms, meaning that some delirium is manifested as hallucinations and people getting anxious and pulling out their central lines or, or tubes. But the majority of delirium, 80 to 90 percent of it, is actually manifested by simply the lady or the man sitting in the bed, minding their own business, and not doing anything. And in fact, one of the clues to the delirium may be that you will notice that your loved one is just so quiet or non-communicative, and the reason for that is that they're having so much of a problem with their thinking that they can't really initiate any form of real communication or following of commands. Dr. Ely, what can healthcare professionals do to prevent ICU delirium? There are many things that can be done, Susan. The patients who are up there, while they already have a disease that could be leading to delirium, many times they acquire new problems in the ICU, and the clinician who sees their patient or the family member who sees their loved one developing delirium should be attuned to the fact that they may have a new infection, for example. They could have developed an intercurrent new hospital-acquired infection like a pneumonia or an infection in a central line, for example. They could also have developed fluid overload like congestive heart failure, and those would be two leading diagnoses that would be associated with delirium, that of sepsis or infection and congestive heart failure, especially in the old patient. And the second main category that somebody who's a healthcare professional ought to think about in somebody who's delirious is to look over the medicine list. You know, what excess medications is this person on that we can now strip and remove that might be leading to the delirium? What resources are available to healthcare professionals in this regard? Well, we have an educational website, icudelirium.org. That would be icudelirium.org, purely educational. But on that website are videos of patients during and after a delirious episode where there's some very informative information that the patients are passing on to you as clinicians or the lay public about what it was like to go through this experience. We also have slide sets, lectures, downloadable instruments that can be implemented at the bedside to monitor delirium, such as the CAM ICU or the confusion assessment method for the ICU. And there are also articles and numerous medical references that are available through this website. What do you teach loved ones about delirium when they're sitting at the bedside? I always like to point out to them that while 
the person is experiencing perhaps this so-called quiet delirium, which is the majority of delirium. We refer to it as quiet because it's so silent and not being manifested with those positive symptoms of anxiety that I told you can occur in the minority. That while the patient's experiencing this quiet delirium, it's very helpful for them to reorient their loved one, tell them the day where they are, why they're in the hospital, tell them who you are in case they're having a delusion that you're someone else. Sometimes people look at you and you think that they're seeing yourself when really they're imagining that you are a dangerous person who's entered the room and they don't recognize you. So reorienting them to time, place, and what's going on can be exceedingly helpful. The other thing I like to mention is to remind them that things like eyeglasses and hearing aids are crucial to try and help reorient and keep the person out of a delirious state. What difference does educating the loved ones make? It makes a big difference uh, not only to try and help the patient, but also to help ease the mind of the loved one because the other component that I teach them is that this delirium, while a big deal, is something that we're paying attention to and that we acknowledge is an important facet of their recovery, so we need to keep monitoring it. And it makes them realize, too, that they're not going crazy thinking that their loved one's brain isn't working, that yes, indeed, this is a component of their illness, and it makes them realize that everybody's taking it very seriously. Can the hallucinations and delusions that happen during delirium cause a form of post-traumatic stress disorder? Those things can be very scary for a patient, and months, weeks and months after an intensive care experience, they can be kind of living in their own little hell of having nightmares that while they were in the ICU, somebody was, for example, trying to kill them or rape them or that they imagined shootings were going on or people outside their window. All of these things are well reported by patients in the ICU. So it's important to talk about them and to help them get professional care if they are having a type of post-traumatic stress disorder like you have read about with military personnel coming back from war, for example, this occurs in around probably 10 to 15 percent of people surviving ICU care. Describe the confusion assessment questionnaire you developed. Yes, this CAM ICU or confusion assessment method for the ICU is, as I said before, downloadable at our website, icudelirium.org. And it's a very simple bedside 20 to 30 second assessment that we have now nurses and doctors doing all over the world. This 20 to 30 second assessment is about 95% accurate up against a 30 minute neuropsychiatric evaluation. That's how we validated this instrument. It's been published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's now translated into 14 languages, most of which are available on the website. And the bottom line of it is that when we're at the bedside, we simply ask the loved one, open your eyes and look at me. And when they make eye contact, we then try and see if they can pay attention to a simple command. We have them squeeze our hand on a certain letter. Miss Smith, whenever I say the letter A, I want you to squeeze my hand. And if I say another letter, don't squeeze my hand. And then we recite 10 letters, something like save a heart with too many A's in there. And we see how many of the letters they can squeeze on A, not squeeze on non-A. And if they can get 8 out of 10 right, that shows that they're able to pay attention and that they do not have delirium. If they get less than 8 out of 10 or if they don't squeeze at all, they probably are having inattention and there are other components of the CAM-ICU where we can sort that out. When is sedation required despite the risk of delirium? That's an important question, and sedation most certainly needs to be provided to patients who are anxious, and analgesia needs to be provided to patients who are in pain. So we always prioritize anxiety and pain, pain being the number one priority to treat, and make sure that the patients do get adequate control of these areas of comfort. 
And we now consider that comfort in a hospitalized patient incorporates pain first, anxiety second, and delirium. And it is very important that some patients get sedatives and analgesics in order to provide them, for example, life support like a mechanical ventilator and different degrees of sedation and analgesia are required for different levels of critical illness. Again, how can listeners learn more? Would you repeat your website, please? It's icudelirium.org. That's icudelirium.org. And the information on that website does include a patient family page with lay information, as well as lots of other medical information that you could spend garnering a great degree of greater understanding in this area. And uh, I would certainly make ourselves available to help people, but also acknowledge that we certainly can't provide medical advice through email and such just because that would be inappropriate. Dr. Ely, thank you so much for joining us to discuss ICU delirium and cognitive impairment. As I said, it's been my privilege, and I appreciate being on the show. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening.